Welcome to podcasts recorded live at the Center for Spiritual Living in Portland, Oregon. Listen past the end of the podcast to find out more about our spiritual center and ways that you may collaborate with us. Well, we're starting a new book and a new month, and I think I need to do a little explaining. When I set up the, the month, the, the whole really year's worth of themes and talks and things like that, I got to December and I thought I wanted to do something a little different this year. Oftentimes, uh, December to me clues me in that idea of the inward journey, a time to sort of review my life a little bit and begin setting intentions for the, the new year. And it occurred to me that there are different ways of doing that. And I chose a different path this year. So I wanted to pick a book of philosophy. The whole idea of science of mind is that that as we change our thinking, we change our life. That that as we believe in a thing and understand and embrace a thing, that's what we get to see more of in the world. And so my thought was maybe we ought to examine where our actual thoughts and beliefs come from. To actually, in a philosophical way, decide for our own selves is what I believe, what I want to believe, and, and how did it get there in the first place? And so, believe it or not, we have Does Santa Exist? <laughs> Now, you, you may, yeah, I know, on the surface it's worth a laugh, but Eric Kaplan actually is talking about the very essence of how we know what we know. And although even though he uses the sort of metaphorical or, 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 or mystical idea of Santa Claus and its existence or not, um, I would tell you that this, you could as easily substitute the word God instead of Santa. You could just as easily substitute um, uh, the word yourself instead of Santa. So although we will be talking about whether Santa exists, and I would say also, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, we will be talking about the existence of Santa Claus. I'm just, I mean really, so if there's anyone here that doesn't want to have that conversation, it's like there's upstairs, okay? All right, okay. Just be, be really clear there, because I, I don't want anyone to come up to me later crying. So, all right. So we're good to go. So let me start with a, a brief quote from this book, and you'll th I think you'll see uh, why I chose it. This book is about things that we're not sure that we believe, things that we half believe, things that we believe, but sometimes we don't believe. Sometimes there are things that we hope we believe, but we don't as much as we'd like to. Sometimes there are things that we wish to stop believing, but that we're not sure how to begin. I want to investigate what the best attitude is to take towards these things, both personally and as a community, and to see if we can come up with something better than just screaming at each other, you're a liar. <laughs> if Santa Claus will do that for you, that's fine. But if you happen not to believe in Santa Claus, maybe because some wise-ass kid like my son told you that he doesn't exist, pick something that you can believe in this month, but is not universally acknowledged as real. I would suggest maybe God, or the point of your existence. Your life, in fact, will end someday, and so will everything else. Given that, what is the point of anything at all. So you see, we're going to be covering some deep ground uh, this month. And I'm going to start with, first of all, the four ways of actually knowing. Now, you may think in your own mind, well, I just know a thing. 
right? I, I know, you know, that the sky is blue, and I know that two plus two is four. I, I know that God exists. I feel it in my heart. I know these things that I know, and that is true for you, and there's a reason actually, that you know the things that you know. There are four primary ways of knowing, and we're going to briefly talk about three of them today and then go into a little more detail on the fourth. First of all, we know things based on our experience. From the earliest age in our crib, we begin observing the world. We know, no one has to tell us that things fall down, right? We see the toys go through the slats (laughs) in our our crib, and oh, they're down there. They're not up there. No one has to tell us that we, in fact, ourselves fall down (laughs) when we get over-rambunctious, right? It's not like gravity has to be explained. Through our own senses and our own experience of the world, all kinds of things, of course, come to us. But is it always accurate? See, the trouble with our five senses is I think they're good recording devices. I think that our senses in themselves do a pretty good job of bringing us the pictures and the images and the sounds and the tactile feelings that our senses bring us. But then there's this little thing of interpretation going on. Because if we simply were assaulted by 100% of the information that our five senses bring to us, we would have no time to do anything It would be like, oh my God, there's 10 million things I'm looking at right now. What are the things that are important? What are the things that agree with what I already believe? What are the things that support me on my mission of being this thing I call Larry? Those are the things that unfortunately the 10 million things I could look at. Instead, I will focus on a few things in some depth. What if I focus on the wrong things? Did you know that the police department doesn't even use eyewitness accounts anymore? It used to be, you know, you used to watch the Perry Mason show, right? And they'd have the big trial scene and they'd bring, some, they'd bring someone like Laura in and say, Laura, what did you see that night? And Laura would stand up there big and proud and she'd say, it was her! <laughs> Do you know what? <laughs> Did I scare you? Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, well, the trouble with that is the eyewitnesses were wrong more often than they were right. Now, in, in this age of videotape, right, half of the crimes that are you know, witnessed are actually witnessed by a videotape. And they were comparing people's eyewitness accounts to what was on the videotape. And there was a whole group of people, forensic folks, that got together and basically said to the legal system, you can't use eyewitness reports anymore. They get the color of the car wrong, they get the license plate numbers wrong, they get the race of the perpetrator wrong, they get the the height of people wrong. It's like you name it, and they get it wrong. And in fact, the, the science of going away from the idea of eyewitness uh, uh, accounts was, was brought into uh, uh, um, so, sort of, sort of uh, uh, prominence when uh, they discovered that one set of eyewitnesses that they had videotapes for, they were wrong about so many things that the defense attorneys would say, well, if she's wrong about all that, why would you trust her to be right about identifying the perpetrator. 
She got the color of his car wrong. She got the color of his jacket wrong. She, it's right here on the tape. You can see how very wrong she is. Why do we believe that she identified? So you see where I'm going with this. The trouble with using our senses as evidence is, frankly, we're wrong a lot of the time. So what's the second source of us defining our reality? What is the second source or the second way that we learn to believe that things are true? Well, again, from earliest childhood, people tell us things, right? Our parents tell us not to put our hand on the stove when it's red, right? Now, we could learn that experientially, <laughs> but most of our parents are pretty kind. <laughs> and they'll say, be careful on the stairs, you'll fall down. Don't put your hand on the stove, it's hot. You know, be safe, bundle up when you go outside, it's cold. And so we learn a lot of the things that we believe to be true and right from the people around us. Well, you can already see the problem with this, right? Because people, even people that love us, even people that I think have our absolute best interest in heart, first of all, they may have gotten things wrong. And even if they didn't get things wrong, they may tell us things to protect us that just aren't quite true. And then, of course, who else tells us things? The media tells us what's true. The, uh, we find out at school what's true. Uh, other kids tell us what's true. Uh, books tell us what's true. Remember the famous book a few years ago that was on Oprah where the gentleman had, had given his life story on Oprah and everybody was like crying and it was this huge deal. And then four months later, he's back on Oprah apologizing because what? It was all made up. <laughs> so can we believe what other people tell us? Well, uh, of course we can, but does it guarantee that the conclusions we come to will be accurate or useful to us? Doesn't guarantee it. You know, my, uh, my, my, uh, one of my elder friends has kind of just discovered the internet. And, uh, and when I ask her about whether she believes everything that's in the newspaper, she says, oh, no, that's done by reporters. No, no, no. The newspaper, it's slanted depending on whether it's the Oregonian or the Statesman. And you got to be careful about the newspaper. That, those reporters. And, and, but because the Internet is new to her, <laughs> right? So, so, so she called me the other day and she said, did you know there's a place in Nairobi that'll send me $2 million? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like oh, oh, let's wait a minute. <laughs> let's wait a minute. <laughs> it's like a lot of times without even thinking, right? We'll be kind of moved into believing that something's true because, well, well what? It's maybe a, someone who looks like a doctor presenting it on TV or it, it's someone who seems very successful to us. And so, well, why wouldn't we believe them? Well, yeah. Why wouldn't we believe them? Because maybe it's not true. Maybe they have a, some kind of an agenda involved. The third kind of wisdom is something that we think of more in a way as a feeling than wisdom, but yet we, we gain knowledge from it. And that's our intuition or our higher wisdom self. Has anyone in here just had a feeling, just knew that something was going to happen and then it did? 
Uh, I, I know for me, it used to involve my family. Like I would just get a feeling, I need to call my mom today. I just need to call my mom. And sure enough, I'd call my mom and she'd say, this is the freakiest thing. I was going to call you. I was in a car accident today. It was one, you know, it was, I'm, I'm okay, but how did you know to call? And there's some way through perhaps the, just the connections on some other plane that we humans exist, that sometimes we just know things. It wasn't told to us. I didn't read it somewhere. Uh, sometimes we, we have an inst- uh, instinctive feeling about certain people. It's not maybe safe to be around her. I need to watch out for him. Or we'll have a sense of, I don't think I want to be on that plane. I still remember the one time I was stranded in the uh, Denver International Airport when it was still downtown at Stapleton. And uh, totally stranded. And and they were letting like one or two flights out. And I just had this weird feeling. I don't want to spend the night here. But the last plane out to Portland, I should be on it. There's something that's just not quite right about this. And boy, am I glad, because I would have spent the night in Colorado Springs. They, they got the plane off the ground, and, and suddenly the visibility and, and, and the snow uh, descended, and they just had to turn around and, and go to the nearest airport that was open, that was Colorado Springs. And believe me, I really wouldn't have wanted to spend the weekend in Colorado Springs. As much as, much as it's a pretty city, that was not home. So that is a third way that we that we learn about the world, a third way that information comes to us. And in fact, Reverend Lynn Johnson is going to be here next week, and she's going to be talking about this mystical way of knowing things. She's going to talk about when to trust that small voice inside, or maybe when it's your ego involved, because sometimes that little small voice that says things in here is really just your ego, and she's going to give you some insight on that. The main thing I want to talk about today, though, a way of knowing that's been really popular since the Industrial Revolution in England, is logic. And believe it or not, kind of first popularized by, guess who, Sherlock Holmes, as written by Arthur Conan Doyle. And the whole idea of, I can figure things out through logic and deduction. And it's a huge popular way that we think we know things. We think that we have figured out things today. And of course, before I launch into this, I should tell you my Sherlock Holmes joke, right? (laughs) Of course I should. All right. So Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, they're on a camping trip in Colorado. I know. Suspend disbelief, right? I mean, we're talking about Santa Claus today. So, so give me some latitude with Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Watson, camping in Colorado. After pitching their tent and building a fire, they had a great meal, a bottle of red wine. As the fire burned low, they lay down for the night and went to sleep. Some hours later, Holmes woke up, nudged his faithful friend and said, Watson, I want you to look up at the sky and tell me what you'd observe. Well, Watson said, after a moment of reflection, I see million and millions of stars. Sherlock Holmes said, and what do you deduce from this? After a minute or so of pondering, Watson said, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. We are not alone in the universe. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three in the morning based on the position of the stars. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we represent the smallest part of God's grandeur. 
Holmes, what does it mean to you? Holmes was silent for just a second and then said, Watson, you idiot, someone's stolen our tent. <laughs> and so, and so I would suggest that's the trouble with learning things, with understanding things, with gaining wisdom through deduction, right? You may have noticed that Sherlock led Watson a little bit. He said, what do you see when you look up at the sky, right? Now, the idea of logic and, and, uh, and, and using deduction is that we build a hypothesis and then we put it to the test. And you'll see what uh, Holmes did kind of wasn't very fair to Watson because his hypothesis involved looking up at the sky. Now, what if his hypothesis or his initial statement had been, uh, Watson, do you notice anything that's changed? Do you see how two people coming at the same issue, because they come at it different directions, will come at it with different methodologies and ultimately different answers. When Watson was said to look at the sky, he began his deduction process. But was that really what uh, Holmes intended? Only in a way to fool his friend. So this is one of the trouble, I think, with logic. Logic has led our planet down some interesting paths. As an example, is anyone here young enough or old enough, depending on how you look at it, to remember how we have flipped back and forth between butter and margarine over the last 30 years. <laughs> so when I was a small child, I would go to visit my grandmother, and she had this white stick of margarine that came with a color packet. And, and she would actually mash the color into margarine so that it would look like butter. Now, you might say, why did she do this? She was coming out of World War II, great rationings, and among the things that was highly rationed were dairy products. And so at that period of time, the hypothesis going on in America around butter versus margarine was, butter is too expensive, butter's hard to come by, we'll make do with margarine. And we'll make it as best we can look like butter by, by mashing in this yellow food coloring. Okay, uh, of course, war over now for a while. In my mother's kitchen, we had butter, uh, right? It's, it's like, great, why, you know, why not have butter? Well, that was good until about 1962. And in 1962, the hypothesis was that the cholesterol in butter meant cholesterol in your bloodstream, which meant an increased rate of heart disease and plaque in your veins. So the hypothesis at that time was, butter, not so good for you. We're back to margarine again. Trouble was, the hypothesis was faulty. Scientists discovered that cholesterol in food is not a one-to-one -one correlation to cholesterol in your bloodstream. In fact, our bodies make the cholesterol. 
So for many, many, many people who were thinking, oh, zero cholesterol and I'll be safe from stroke, it never put a dent in the cholesterol that their body was producing. They were still at exactly the same risk of, of a stroke and heart attack as the people who watched their diet. And so nowadays, we're back to butter again. All of this based on logic. The flip and the flop, all of it based on good, old, important, can't get away without it logic. The trouble is the hypothesis. When people come at a problem using logic, they must develop their initial hypothesis that gets proven. And so often what I observe, especially among couples and people who want to decide something between them based on logic, they actually have different hypotheses. And so have you ever found yourself kind of arguing with someone over how to raise a child or what restaurant to go to or, or you know, whether we should spend Christmas at home or whether we should go on vacation? People arguing about something to do in the world and they think they're being really logical about it. They, they think that they're laying out their facts just as though it were a Perry Mason trial and, and anyone will be able to see that what we really should do is XXXXX, and the other person, of course, with a slightly different hypothesis about the same subject is building their case. No, it should look like this, and it should look like this. You know, let's get back to the idea of, uh, of maybe Christmas vacation. One person saying, no, we really need to save the money. We really should stay close to home. You know, I'm building my case, but my hypothesis is probably thriftiness and being with family. And so, right, I'm laying out the facts, well, we really can't afford it, and, and uh, we'd miss being with the grandchildren, and if we go on vacation now, we won't be able to do things later, and I'll build my case. And I think I'm like, hey, I'm right. I logically prove that we stay home for the holidays. <laughs> Meanwhile, the hypothesis of my partner is more along the lines of, we really deserve a nice vacation in Hawaii would be great and we can put it on our credit cards and there's no worries here, right? We, de we deserve a nice rest. We deserve, and so, and so my partner is like this, no problem. I've proved that I'm right using logic. <laughs> and where do we end up? Uh, well, yeah, maybe at the airport, grounded. I don't know. But do you see how we think we're doing something good by proving our case? by using logic in some way to prove or to settle something between people. I would suggest to you that normally this is a disaster, and so I will present the case for Santa Claus. So one uh, hypothesis would be, my hypothesis is that Santa does not exist because the so-called facts about him are not true. Here is my evidence. Reindeer do not fly. I've been to the zoo. I've observed them innumerable times in summer and in winter. They do not fly. Slaves cannot hold enough presents for everyone. I'm just saying. I've seen some really big trucks. I don't think they're flying. But a sleigh big enough for presents for everybody in one trip? Nobody, not even a computer, has the addresses of every child on the planet. Do I need to say any more? And this next one was particularly compelling to me as a child myself. 
overweight gift givers won't fit down a chimney. (laughs) Do the measurements yourself. And finally, and this is one that I would suggest you go home and prove it to yourself with your own evidence. Get on Google Earth, examine the North Pole, and you will discover nothing at the North Pole other than a couple of research laboratories, one funded by the United States and one funded by a coalition of, of Nordic explorers. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> she just said, well, maybe it's underground. <laughs> All right, so because of the things we're told about Santa are not true, therefore, Santa does not exist. Okay, so logically, using that particular hypothesis, we have proven that Santa does not exist. Satisfied? See, I'm not. So I came up with another hypothesis. My hypothesis is that Santa exists because evidence of him is everywhere. And here's my evidence. Movies, books, TV, and other media consistently show him. He was just on TV over the Thanksgiving weekend. I'm sure some of you saw him. He has a rich history and dependability of showing up as predicted. I mean, has there been a Christmas in your lifetime that there was not some evidence of him? Of course not. There are so many, many people that promote Santa, Santa's image, Santa's agenda, and Santa's vision of how things work in the world. Are they all lying to us? Is there some bizarre conspiracy? Is, it, is there like a, a, a Santa website that would tell us about some horrible conspiracy of Santa? See, I think, as, as uh, Sherlock Holmes would say, the best answer is the simplest one, and that is that he exists. The next thing I would say is even if somehow you don't believe that there is a guy who really is Santa Claus, are you saying that existence really requires a physical presence? We believe in all kinds of things that do not have a physical presence, right? We believe in electricity. We believe in love. Because you cannot see them on the map, does that mean those things don't exist? And then there also is the idea, I would say, of uh, what do you want to say, kind of the Santa Claus as a, as a feeling or Santa Claus as a, as a way of being in the life. Santa gives a name to the fun and magical aspects of childhood. He's fun for parents and children alike. So why wouldn't we choose to believe in Santa? But finally... I have irrecontrovertible proof that Santa exists. (laughs) Is Santa not real? I think therefore I am. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So I have presented two compelling arguments completely based on logic for both the existence and the non-existence of Santa. You see our problem here, don't you? As with so many things in life, it's not that we believe or we don't believe. 
It's not that we can prove or that we cannot prove. So often, it merely is how we pose the question. And so from a science of mind perspective, I would like you to begin evaluating the things that you believe are true and good. Could it be that they're only true and good for you? Could it be the things that you think and that you believe are true may in fact only be half true or partially true? Could it be one of those things like from childhood where you pictured your first birthday one way and the other 12 kids at the birthday party pictured it a completely different way? Could it be your perception of an event or your memory of an event that is causing you to believe a certain thing is true? Now, one place I will tell you where the idea of logic is really helpful, and I would encourage you to to use logic in this way. When you are arguing with yourself, sometimes logic actually can be kind of helpful, especially around the area of self-talk. Now, does anyone here in the room ever have that tendency to kind of roll things around in your head and kind of end up with the proclamation of, oh, Larry, you stupid idiot, can't you get anything right? Or, or, oh, Larry, if you were were only more likable, um, things would go well in the world. Or, Or you might say to yourself, what's wrong with me? I just can't get this. What's going on? Or maybe you might think of yourself as, gosh, you know, I, I'm, I've gotten to that age where people just don't even talk to me anymore. It's like I don't exist anymore. All of this, right? Damaging self-talk. And yet, beliefs that we may have about ourselves. Here's where logic actually can help us out. Because I will tell you, those negative self-talks, we did not learn through logic. We learned them either through someone telling us we weren't good enough, or we learned them through the faulty evidence of our, sen- of our senses, right? Well, I, I, I failed those two tests, so I'm stupid, right? So, so it's either through our senses normally, or through it's what people told us, those two ways of learning the truth, that we end up with negative self-talk. Put a little logic on that. Is it, your hypothesis could be, is it true that I'm not lovable? Is it true that I'm stupid? And you see, it won't take you very long. You can prove it to yourself. You can actually get out of a hole of self-doubt through this process of log- logic. You can say, well, no, I, I, I took one of those tests and I'm perfectly average intelligence-wise. My thinking that I'm stupid is just something left over, something crazy from childhood. I'm as smart as the average American. There's no problem with that. Why am I so down on myself? What do I mean I'm not lovable just because I went through a divorce this year or whatever? Am I really not lovable? I can name you 35 people that I love and that loved me. Do you see where I'm going with this? So so one of the places that logic, I think, can really be a help to you is sometimes when you're of a mixed mind yourself. Because most of the mixed mindedness that comes from people are evidence on the outside that's telling them to think a certain way about themselves. And if we go for that more inward journey of really examining the truth of something, is this really true? Is my marriage doomed to fail? Is this really true? Am, Am I gonna, do I not deserve a better job than this? Sometimes logic can really help you out. The disastrous place for logic, though, I would say, is in couples and family who are trying to prove a point. When two people are in a room and they just, at all costs, 
with no holds barred, want to be right. Have you been in that position before and suddenly you notice you're kind of beat red and like, why am I yelling at you? I love you. And, and usually what's going on is you have separate hypotheses and you've been each mounting the evidence piece by piece by piece of why I'm right and my evidence and my truth is better than yours and this is the thing we should do and, and are you crazy? I just told you all the reasons why. And the trouble is we're coming at the same issue with a different hypothesis. If you want to use logic with friends, with family to help make you decisions, you have to develop the hypothesis together. You have to agree on the methodology by which you will gather the evidence to prove the thing. If you do that, and of course, you know, when you're in the heat of some kind of an argument, how would that be? Hi, I think we should stop now and examine, <laughs> and examine our hypothesis around here because I think the best way to determine a vacation would be based not only on cost efficiency, but all, do you see what I mean? Probably not so likely to happen. So my ultimate question and what I'm gonna leave you with today as you go off to begin mingling with people for the holidays is, is it more important to be right or is it more important to be happy? If you're using logic as a weapon trying to influence other people into believing what you believe, gosh, could be a rough holiday ahead. <laughs> so that's my homework for you. Examine your beliefs, and when you come up against a conflicting set of beliefs, ask yourself, is it more important that I'm right, or is it more important that between us, we get to experience some love and happiness? I'm going to close with a final quote from uh, Does Santa Exist, and then a prayer. So how about that Santa Claus? If we have decided that the best thing is to lie to ourselves and believe in Santa Claus then do we still believe in Santa Claus or don't we? It seems that we both do and we don't, both as individuals and a society. But this was exactly why we started here. I thought logic would help us out. The path of logic has led us nowhere. It's time to consider whether the initial move of logic was a mistake. Maybe saying and believing self-contradictory things isn't a sign that we've got things wrong. Maybe saying and believing self-contradictory things isn't a sign that something's wrong. Maybe it's a sign that we're getting things right. Let us pray. There is one power and one presence. There is one allness of all things. I call this thing God. Uh, but you know what? Part of it is because I define it as God. My hypothesis, if you will, is that all there is is God. Every person, every place, everything, every situation, all that is good, everything is God. And because this is true, 
I deduce that that means me. I know that my heart is part of the one heart, that my love is part of the one love. My consciousness is part of God's consciousness. And as it is true for me, of course, as God is all, it is true for each person in this room. Each person here, part of the infinity of love and light and joy and peace that is God. And so for this day and from this place of unity, I I usher myself into a willingness to really examine the things that I believe are true and good. Could it be that they're only true and good for me? And is that good enough? Could it be that my way is just my way and that it does not have to equate to everyone's way? I have a willingness in my heart and on behalf of the people in this room to begin taking a look at the things that we believe and the evidence for them and have an openness to see that there is something more than being right. That there is a a willingness on all of our parts to really take a look at our beliefs and to see if believing perhaps differently would be of benefit to us. That if believing different ways of being, different ways of approaching people, different ways of being in the world, if it might actually provide some solutions. And so it is with great love and great gratitude that I release this prayer into the activity and action of the law. I simply let it be, and together we say, and so it is. Thank you so much for being here today. So glad you're here. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, we'd love to have you visit in person. The Portland Center for Spiritual Living is located at 6211 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. We have inspirational services at 9 and 11 a.m. every Sunday. Our mission is to open hearts, ignite minds, and to make a difference. If you'd like to support our center and its podcasts, you can donate online at www.pcsl.us slash donate. Our website is also the place to learn more about what's going on at the center or to contact us. Allow us to become part of your extended community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living.